Today I'm sitting down with a musician who's gained recognition in the rap world and then later in the folk punk world as well. He's moving beyond that now as a member of the new band, The Co-Defendants. And he's also a really good friend of mine. And that allowed us both to open up quite a bit about some personal experiences from our lives. I'll leave it at that, and I hope you enjoy episode 11 of Back in the Grind podcast as we bring you closer to Chesky Ramos. Chesky Ramos, welcome to the show. Hello. How you doing, brother? Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you. It's been a while since you and I sat down for a longer period of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a bit of a hectic year, but but yeah, it's it's nice to see your face on here. I got to say as far as everyone that's been on the show so far, you're probably the person I'm the most uh connected to and have the closest relationship with. So, if we get a little too personal or intimate at any point, you know, you can not answer things. You know, it's cuz I have a larger understanding of who you are in a lot of areas. Yeah. Uh, more so than I did with other guests. Yes, totally. Go go nuts. Well, I know you have mentioned in the past and several times just the interest in the history between you and I, your connection with the folk punk community, uh, where that's brought you. And it just a lot of that history seems to be kind of hidden in the shadows in some ways and, and not known in a lot of circles. Right. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think we should definitely talk about it. you are the biggest part of that history, the biggest connector the, you know, so that's, I think that's something people should know. I think there's a whole new generation of people who don't know that story. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I'm not trying to focus on me, but we could definitely, you know, we'll get into that. I, I'm curious to hear your perspective, I guess, on some of that. Um, yeah. You know, the recent, a recent episode uh, my co-host Folk Punk Dad did with Brooke Pridemore, it was actually fascinating to me because Brooke shared some stories about uh, interactions with me. And it's so interesting to hear the other person's perspective of an experience that, you know, we both shared. So, I mean, I'd love to hear uh, some of your perspective on that. I mean, let's, let's get back to some of the early days of of what you're referring to. Like what, what was that like for well, you? Well, the first show you ever put me on was at a place called the nest in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And it was, it was with Johnny Hobo and the freight trains, MC homeless. And I believe, I believe Davy dreadnought was there as well. I don't know if Davy performed. I'm pretty sure Davy was there as well. And, um, and and myself and i'm pretty sure that was the whole lineup oh no maybe there was someone else too but yeah it was like yeah you know i'll i'll interject real quick um so you weren't originally booked to play uh homeless homeless yeah i gotta give props to homeless because he definitely connected me to a lot of folks yeah he you know i was interested in uh folk punk at that time and hip-hop and he definitely connected me to like a lot of rappers um yeah homeless another thing about homeless i should shout out which i haven't before but one of the first people to um book me as a solo act i had done hawaii and california but outside of uh those states homeless booked me at a 
at a house show in Kent, Ohio, where he was living. And I found out that there was a whole nother world of people who knew what I had been making. And, and he's our connection as well. So, yeah, I appreciate his efforts. You know, he connected a lot of people um, in general. I think he's been pretty good at that. And at that time too, for me, like folk punk and, and like rap kind of back then wasn't really like any connection going on. I was interested in kind of merging those two and I was booking shows with like folk punk people and rappers together. It was like a common theme, um, mm-hmm. definitely with his support. But yeah, that first show that you performed that you're just talking about, I have, uh, I never shared with you my thoughts on that, but why don't you go ahead and, and, and share yours first? Sure. <laughs> I was pretty in the dark. I hadn't played maybe any local shows in Connecticut at that time. It, it was pretty early on. I had a I had built a following mostly in California, mostly on the West Coast and Hawaii, strangely enough. And this is around the time, I, I, I want to say around the time Francisco Faults had come out. So the only record that was out was Fake Flowers, which was a really lo-fi kind of collection of my young songs that eventually was released in 2004, but it was recorded way before that. So yeah, I had no real connection to the scene in um, Connecticut other than my a band Dead by Wednesday, which was also starting around that time that we were playing shows. I didn't really have do any solo shows in the area. Um, so being invited by you was cool. Um, it was just a whole, it was just a new experience for me. I didn't, I had never heard of Johnny Hobo. Um, I mean, at the time, I, I'm, Pat was, Pat and Michael were pretty young and really young. And I, I don't think they were, uh, they were really known at all at the time because I remember no one really came out for them. No, no I mean, it was a very lightly attended show in general, but they just played in a corner. And the energy of it was impressive to me. And that's, that was something that inspired me because I had been playing shows for a while and had my own thing going on. And I was always kind of breaking that, breaking those barriers energetically as well, like playing in different parts of the, you know, playing all over the floor and moving the show around and doing stuff like that. Already at that time in Hawaii, there's, you know, 2003, I remember doing that stuff. But um, it was cool to see Pat's version of that and the energy. Like, it was just an incredible energy. They remind, I remember Pat and Michael kind of reminded me of my brother and I, in a way. Like, they were like the crusty, like, dirty punk versions of, of what we were doing. And yeah, it, it was, it was cool. It was just cool to, to meet you. And I didn't know what to make of your DIY bandits or I, I hadn't, really known much of anything at that point but you seemed like a cool dude and you're putting on these interesting shows in this art space warehouse and yeah that, that's what i remember so bear with me through this um it'll it'll come to a good place in the <laughs> end but so i remember i remember this show and yeah homeless um was playing that show mc homeless and johnny hobo as you mentioned um and Holmes asked me if, if you know, his buddy could play play a quick set, which was you. And I, I said, sure. And 
you know, I had no idea who you were. I didn't know your music. Uh, you had performed and I was not that into what you were doing actually in the moment. So I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. What, what's this dude doing? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I'm not digging it. It seemed like you were kind of struggling. And I guess I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, then you played the song Shame and like the lyrics really caught me. Right. That's, I was like, oh, this, this is pretty cool. Like lyrically afterwards I approached you. I mentioned like, I like that song. And you had some Francisco false CDs. I was running a little distro at the time. So I asked if I can buy like five to add to my distro. And I went home and opened one of the CDs up and listened to it. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. Like this is, you know, it was unique. Uh, it was, it was really good. And I think that when I said you were struggling with the performance, like, honestly, that was my fault because I had such a shitty sound system. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing half the time and I had this really crappy sound system. And that, I think, you know, that was like, even homeless had some complications with that, like really poor sound system because I was doing like these folk punk shows mostly where we didn't use right, a sound system, right. you know, and then you rappers were coming on and I right. had no idea like how to like handle that. Like, it, like having beat based music with shitty sound systems, um, is tough sometimes and that that's kind of part of the reason i included started doing more acoustic stuff was because of all the shitty sound systems i could i could figure out a way eventually to not use the sound system at all and that that was the acoustic music was the way you know what i mean mm -hmm. but it, yeah that's happened many many times <laughs> you know i mean i'm glad i had the cds to go home and listen to and uh and I mean, we probably would have ended up connecting even if that didn't happen, like if I didn't buy the CDs and listen to it, because we just, you know, being in the same area, I mean, honestly, I'm surprised we never connected sooner. Like even as like teenagers, we were going to the same like punk club back in the we day were. And, and we probably attended the same shows. I know you're like a little bit older than me. I don't, that doesn't make a big difference when you're our age now, but back then that might've made a difference. I was like a little pretty young mm -hmm. kid going to those like. so. After that first show, I remember I reached out to you and the next time we hung out was I had invited you over to like what we called the bandit basement uh, in, in Shelton. And you came in and I was like, you know, let's just hang out and maybe try and record a song. Um, that was ended up being polyps. Right. And that was like really awesome to see you like work. Like, you know, like you came in this basement and you're like, you kind of like scoped the, the landscape of the basement and you looked at all the instruments and you just started grabbing instruments, putting things together. I mean, we had like old like keyboard organ that we found in the trash and like you started playing that and like, and it was just really cool to see you in that element. And then you had myself and the other bandits, you like, you had us doing backing vocals and you kept like adding uh, different stuff to the song. And that was a really fun experience. Yeah, it was and, fun. Like, it allowed me to appreciate your, your skill and ability. Like it really, shine through for me in that moment yeah that was a great time and um it was a strange time in my life because of my grandmother was sick right so she had dementia and we were taking care of her whenever i was in new haven i was basically taking care of her whenever i wasn't in new haven i was on tour at that point so when you invited me it was during that period i i, I want to say it was probably 2007 yeah, around that time. So the first show would have been 2006. I did do another Nest show with Pat. I don't remember that one, when that one was. But Pat was already known at that time. 
Like that was the one where mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the one where Pat um, played and like a hundred kids showed up and then I and you were like, all right, you gotta you play after Pat because Pat has to catch a train. And I was like, I'll never play after Pat again because like a hundred kids just left immediately <laughs> after he went. Yeah, and it was like it was pretty funny, but. Well, you found your place, though, not too long after that. I mean, we started doing house yeah. shows, and, and people were coming out specifically for you. Yeah, yeah. It was growing. It grew a lot after that. Yeah. It was. And in, and really, we were doing a bunch of cool shows, like those um, People Center shows and uh, mm-hmm. house shows. And yeah. Remember Tommy J's Lost Home for Boys? Yeah, we did shows there. Yeah, there was a, yeah. it was an era mm-hmm. with the Bandit shows where it was really consistent. They were really fun shows. Yeah, that was dope. Yeah, it, you know, I, I never once paid for a venue. <laughs> like, I, I just never, it was never, like, I never booked a sh- Actually, uh, let me rephrase that. I did it once before I started DIY Bandits. I um booked a show with, it doesn't matter who, but I booked a show in, in Bridgeport at the Acoustic Cafe. They wanted 400 bucks plus a cut <laughs> of the door. And after that, I was like, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like it just, you know, like I, I broke even barely. I mean, I didn't, I gave everything to the musicians is what I always did. I never kept money for shows. But after that, I was like, I'm never paying for a, a venue again. And we kind of did what we called renegade shows for a while. I was a little before I met you, but we were just set up in different uh, places. And we set up in like lobbies of buildings without permission. And we just do these shows. And I feel like I've been to like park, park shows you did before. Yeah, you definitely been to park shows. Yeah. Uh, also, you had a venue at one point, right? Yeah. I mean, I talked about it some, but not a ton. That's actually like really what helped me get connected with the folk punk world. It was more of a punk, like hardcore punk venue. That was kind of the thing in Connecticut. We're doing a lot of punk shows, some hardcore yeah. shows. Uh, the interesting thing was through that venue, Eric Peterson reached out to me. Uh, he was looking to book some shows. We didn't know each other. And he had found, you know, this DIY venue in Connecticut and wanted to book a show. Oh, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it was, that was our first, man, Eric was like the sweetest man in folk punk. I'll say that. And Very I might've said this person. before on this show. I don't know, but like, yeah, I, the first time I met Eric was at this factory house, the venue, the illegal venue I made and nobody came to the show right? Nobody, literally. Uh, there was one girl who worked at the local Dunkin' Donuts around the corner. She's like this punk rock girl named Chicken. And she came out just to like hang out, but she wasn't like going to pay to go in the show. And I was like, no one was there. I was like, just go in. So it was just like me and Eric and, and Denise and then this girl Chicken. Uh, Denise was Eric's wife. But anyways, after that show, Eric gave me this great big hug and uh, well, the cops came, which always happened at my shows. Actually, the cops came and like they wanted to they wanted to search Eric's car because he had his car before he was on tour, and they were like harassing they him. They came to a it show. It was so crazy. I mean, that happened. There was four four people total in the whole room to shut that. Yeah, down. yeah. But Eric, yeah, <laughs> Eric gave me this this great hug, and then I was like, I'll probably never see this guy again. Why is he going to want to book a show with me when no one came out? And then he hit me up uh, a couple months later that, you know, I don't know when it was, but the venue had been shut down by the city at this point, but he hit me up again and we uh, booked another show and it went a lot better. But at that second show, that show ended and then he gave me this great big hug and a kiss on the cheek that time. And I'm like, this dude 
is so sweet and like he was yeah i definitely i I miss eric and i i remember you pat and i the last time i believe it was the last time we all saw eric you and pat run tour yeah yeah he was such a kind person and uh such a welcoming host and just i don't know i remember just getting that that lifer you know like we had at that point in time, I mean, that was 2014, right? So, so at that Probably, point in time, yeah. we were just all like road dog lifers, and and there's just this mm-hmm. connection between all of us that people who have lived that lifestyle, um, you know, we appreciate someone that could be a nice host and such a humble person and such a yeah, I'm, I didn't get to know him very well, but but uh, every interaction I had with him was really cool. Spectrum. So let's uh, change topics a bit. And I mentioned the song Shame, and that was kind of what really grasped my yeah. attention with you. And at, at that time, like the, the thing, I was playing around with this idea that, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but the idea that heaven and hell can be a real place that exists here on earth, right? And the things we choose to do in life or the situations that happen to us can easily bring us to either of those places. And I thought that song, Shame, I was like, oh, this person that you're singing about, like, yeah, they they wound up in hell in real life and they were living it and experiencing it. And then some years later, when I was in prison, when I was locked up, I, I wrote you uh, either a letter or an email and I kind of expounded on that idea. And I mean, I was like years later, you know, that, that concept uh, was still fascinating me. And you said it was, you know, and you kind of took this perspective, like, huh, I never really looked at it that way. And you thought that was interesting. But I hear that in your music, and I, I think I said that in a letter. Like you, you describe at least my interpretation of like there's plenty of songs of like people who ended up in that place, who ended up in hell. Right. That's a great analysis of it. I mean, I think that's a great interpretation of it. Um, I could tell you the story of when I wrote that song. Though, if you're interested? Yeah, I'd love to hear. It. I mean, that that song has a lot of meaning to me. You know. So. I remember very vividly when I wrote that song because I was 21 years old. I was um, alone in my father's apartment in Berkeley, California, while he was on a crack binge and um, and was just kind of in and out of my life at the time. And I was just observing this man fall apart. Uh, in front of my eyes, you know, I was in the middle, I was in the, the fucking eye of the storm, you know, he was just like in and out and fucking, you know, he, he took one of my credit cards at one point would like ruffle through my wallets. He'd come in at like five in the morning, fucking <laughs> eat ice cream and then just like go back to the streets. Like it was like a really intense, chaotic time. He was also convinced he was being pursued by the CIA and, you know, he thought he was like microchipped and it was like, it was a, it was a very intense time. Um, and I was kind of 
stuck in his apartment because I didn't really have any place to, to go. I remember writing that song in that apartment and I'm not necessarily saying it's a song about him directly, but that's what inspired that. Watching someone who went from having a fairly stable life at one point in time completely um, fall into another space to the point of being living on the street at some point. And, you know, and this is someone that had success. My father, to give a little background on my father, he was a young, successful Latin American literature professor. He was kind of a star in the um, in the academic field. He wrote a book that was still still really important, really young. And at at some point, you know, a few years after wrote, I wrote Shame, he he lost his job. You know, for many years, fell into um, drug addiction, and, and um, you know, lost his our family. You know, we. My my parents separated. I was eight years old. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the stabilizing elements of, of his life, were, were gone, at some point, and that is the, origin, of that song in particular. At the time, I was still, was struggling with being very clear. About the characters in my music, I would create kind of scenarios and characters and not be outright talking about my um, personal life as much. It was, it was a struggle for me to write that way. So clearly I, I actually don't think up until I think broken bone battles is really the first album where I stopped using characters completely and just started writing in my voice and about my life and experiences, even though all of it was, autobiographical um so the the way that you're analyzing that song shame talking about people's personal hells seeing hell um in their lifetimes that's a great analysis because i think that's that is exactly what it's about if you could hell is just the term you're using for it but that's exactly what it is Did your father go oh, to hell? Yeah. My father, I can't believe my father's alive. My father survived like true hell. I've watched him. I've watched him go through shit that looked like the exorcist. You know what I mean? I've watched my father like fucking bone skinny, shivering, screaming, um, like coming off of drugs and then, um, you know, and then back to it, and you know, I know my father has seen how, and you know, and my, you know, and if you listen carefully to my music, I talk about some of his history as well. My father, I'll just be very open about it because I, I'm with you. Um, my father, you know, found his father, found his father's body dead from suicide when he was 17 in in a hotel in Puerto Rico. So where he's from in San Juan two weeks later. I didn't even know this until a week ago. Cause I was just in Puerto Rico with him two weeks after that, he flew to Pittsburgh to go to college because he got a, 
he got into a college in Pittsburgh. Two weeks after he found his body. It's pretty wild. 17 years old. A lot of like unresolved issues there. I watched that. Um, and I watched the ways he tried to resolve them. And where he's at in life right now, he's in a much, he's now back on the island caring for my elderly grandmother. And his life is like kind of returned to a cycle of extreme stability because he's back with his family now, you know, many, many, many years later after running and running and, and definitely, you know, experiencing hell on another level. Um, you know, my father, you know, like, I don't, I've never gone into so many details about him, but my father had been like stabbed four separate times. He'd been like, he'd gone through all this shit. It always kind of been like a street dude and, it, and had found his way into the academic world because he's brilliant, you know? So it was always like this back and forth and he's always lived in a, a, a liminal space between those worlds to this day, I think. He he never fully felt accepted in the academic world, even though, he, you know, at some point he was. And I've always felt that way. I've always felt between spaces as far as scenes and um, um, even in the academic world, I was doing really well. I had like a full scholarship to college and I was on track to be a professor and I was completely, I felt like thrown away by the academic world. Um, they didn't understand the work I was doing. I think musically, a lot of people didn't understand the work I was doing musically for a long time, till many years later, till it kind of, till the kind of shit I was making sort of became more acceptable. I think I always made shit that was a little bit ahead of my time as far as like genre mashing and stuff. And yeah, uh, that's just my perspective on on that i kind of went on a <laughs> i went off topic there but yeah so you mentioned living in your father's apartment uh i guess while he was journeying into hell and, and back i'm i'm curious i mean you know i'm a father myself um and i'm a son myself i i mean when our parents go on a journey we're going with them at some level yeah. or another, right? It might not be right by their side or it could be. I'm like, so as your father was stepping into this, this world, this hell, I'm curious, where, where did that take you? Oh, I, I fully experienced it with him. You know, I remember very specific times. I remember one time my father at the time still had his job teaching. I remember going on these missions with him where I was driving. I would be like driving him around because he was too fucked up to drive. Sometimes he'd make me like pull over and like on the side of the road and look for fucking microphones and stuff like that. Cause he was convinced he's like, pull over now. They're looking for me. Like he was, he was so convinced he was being um, followed at all times. And um, super intense time when you're, that close to somebody going through a pro going through that you it's inevitable that you're going to almost inherit it's inherited trauma and inherited energy i was born with this inherited trauma of my father's um 
of my father's loss of his own father. I was born with it. Something I, I don't I only understood after years of therapy and not trying to run from it. It sounds kind of fucked up to say, but the only way I was able to step out of that space was to cut him off. You know, on on some level, I never fully cut my father off, but there were years where we barely communicated. And um, and it was Mm kind of like he latched onto my brother and my brother eventually did the same thing. And even now, even now, yeah. They still have like issues because of that, but um, I've never fully cut my father off, but I've just backed away from that space because it just um, because it brought up a, it just it, you know, like when you're around too much negative energy, it starts changing the way you think about everything around you. When you're around stress, when you're around um other people going through grief it changes your outlook of the world i i had to make very conscious decisions to to step out of spaces that made me feel um this way and i think it's because of my own empathy you know what i mean and it it was difficult to do when you watch it when you're watching someone you love kill themselves in front of you slowly I've had to do that around many times in my life. And I always have some level of guilt because of it, but I know it's, it's the only way to protect myself. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. Listening to you and you, you just said like the experience of watching someone kill themselves slowly, which was, I mean, that's definitely sounds like hell. You know, if you went back to those younger years for yourself and you can articulate something to your father, what do you think you would have said to him or or told him with your understanding now of what was going on? I would tell him you are reacting this way because you have unresolved history, Um, almost like a ghost, you know, like the, the idea of a ghost that, unresolved issues and still lingers around he was living that life entirely what i would tell him is if you can fight through this and make it through this life will eventually become easier weight will eventually be lifted off of your shoulder Mm. and um you you can survive you've survived a lot and and you can and honestly it's really difficult to care about a person and even speak clearly to a person going through what he was going through. I probably told him a bunch of shit back then. None of it stuck. You know what I mean? Well, that, that concept of a ghost, I can relate to that in my own experience, perhaps not on that level, that deep of a journey into hell, but when I was selling weed and it got into like a pretty big thing going on with what I was doing, you know, and we had an airplane. Yeah. The operation. Yeah. Um, I did things that, you know, I look back now and it's like, I kind of like said to myself, like what possessed me to do that? And it, and I like that term because 
literally like people, you know, people can become possessed by something they're going through or something from their past. And you start acting almost outside of yourself, right? That the past experience is possessing your actions. And, you know, I can totally understand and relate to that. And it takes a lot of work to bring that to consciousness, right? Like, Absolutely. And and a fast life is, you know, which is what both of us have lived in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. Being a, you know, professional dealer, basically with a big business that relies on you, it's a very fast life and it's hard to, to step out of it when you're, when you're in it. And I mean, mm-hmm. there is anything I took away from prison was I was forced to slow down and like, look at myself. And, um, and I'm not, and I have, I have nothing nice to say about the actual system. I'm saying what I took from it was that I was forced to slow down. Mm-hmm. From my experience, even before I got arrested, you know, and I was, I mean, people might say, oh, it's just weed. But I mean, you know, when you're talking it about matter you know, half a what million it is. dollar transactions, like it's the, it's the, it's that, like, whatever it is, it could, you could be selling avocado. Yeah. It's like, it's, it, it's the lifestyle of mm-hmm. super, it could be touring as a musician. I mean, I now at this point in my life, mm-hmm. it's, it happened to me recently where I started seeing myself going down a path with co-defendants is seeing myself possibly going down a path and I had to break it and step away from it. Now I, I have the insight and the experience to be like, to be like, okay, this, this is a bad path. This is a life that's too fast. I'm getting, I'm losing myself. It's time to step back, mm-hmm. um, get back into therapy, go to, go to the spaces that are stabilizing spaces for me it's like my partner's apartment you know what i mean like being with her um step out of the the chaos of a fast life but at, at the time when i was you know um doing what you did as well it was hard to to focus on anything i even remember seeing you there because we were in different places in our lives while you were doing a lot of the flights out to Cali and all that stuff, I was like fucking broke as could be and forced to <laughs> slow down by like parole and these other things. Um, barely mm-hmm. even playing too many shows at the time because of that. While y'all were like growing rapidly as a business and I was watching it and I watched mm-hmm. the changes and I could say, You've never changed that much, but I do remember times where I was like, "Oh, damn!" Like he's like he's living that life. Mm-hmm. Like I remember you being so caught up in the mix where you were losing sight of your loved one. You know, you 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 weren't like at your loved ones, mm-hmm. your oh, absolutely family, um, your you know, I. I remember saying you were so wrapped up in this, in the, in the fast life and the, in the business and that you, you were endlessly like 
on the job, you know? And that's one thing. It's like, we have these like non-traditional jobs, even as a musician, this could happen because what happens when we have these non-traditional jobs is that we don't have hours set aside where if, if we don't check ourselves, we'll constantly be on our phones or constantly driving somewhere, flying somewhere. It's like, and I, I live like that still to some degree, but I've made it, um, I've, 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 I've worked on making different spaces for myself where I, I'm not constantly in it. I turn my phone off quite a bit. I, um, I have to make an effort to not be in the job. And that's something that only comes with experience. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the stabilizing place with your partner. And for me, you know, I got a good props to Big my props. wife I and mean, she was my girlfriend at the time, but Lee was the first. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she's done so much. She's held it down through all this, but she was the first person uh, before I ever got in trouble and I was just caught up in the game. She was the first person. She said, Hey, you're behaving differently. Like she called me out on it. And like, I'll be honest for as large as the operation got, I, I do feel like I did a good job of maintaining most of who I was. But there were elements of me that, you know, and maybe you didn't see it because you weren't uh, as intimately connected to me as, as her. But she told me one day and she, you know, and it, and it kind of took me aback. And at first I was like, what, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, but then I was thought about it and I was like beginning to realize my my behaviors. I mean, and I'll give one quick example of something. This happened after she had said that to me. But I remember. And this was like before the operation got super big. Like it, I was um, selling weed and I was selling out of my garage. I had a garage detached from the house where my kids live. And these people who I had been selling to for like, you know, a year or two, they came and to buy some weed, you know, and they were going to buy a pound of weed or whatever. And they pulled up and, you know, I saw the two of them in the car and I went in the garage. And they must have had somebody laying down in the back seat because I didn't see them. And we're in the garage and this person runs in with a ski mask and a gun and puts me on my knees and ties my hand behind my back with a zip tie. And he's putting the gun to my head. Meanwhile, my kids are 500 feet away, not even, in, in the house. And this whole thing plays out and you know they end up leaving. And my first response is to make a phone call to the person that connected these pe to me to these people and say, yo, these fucking people just robbed me. Like, you know, I need information on them. You know, I need to know like what you know about them so I can handle the situation. My thought wasn't, oh, I just got tied up with a gun in my head yeah. 300 feet away from my family. Talking about like being like, you know, a ghost or like being possessed. Like I was like, this thing took on a mind of its own in a sense. And it possessed me, you know, like to not be conscious of the things I should be conscious of. Uh, I mean, I'm ashamed to say like that, that was my response. My response wasn't, I have to consider my family safety at that time. And I would never obviously behave the same way now. It's a tricky thing when you're in the middle of it. It's crazy to think, you know, it's, you know, that's happened to a lot of my friends You're in the middle of it. You're thinking, well, this business, this is my livelihood. Um, I can't call the police. 
I would never call the police because they're not going to do shit for me and they're going to, and I'd be giving myself up in my business. And, and then you got to like weigh the options after that. Is it worth retaliating? That could lead to a whole nother war or taking the hit of these people who fucking, who just like threaten my family, like, you know, threaten me in front of my family, basically. Uh, I've seen this happen way too many times, man. On even worse levels than that. Mm-hmm. I had friends of mine who had their, who got like tied up with guns to their heads when they had like two little babies and like pulled them all out and like of their bedrooms do the whole thing, mm-hmm. like, you know. And they still continued because they didn't know any other way to form a life. When you start getting used to a certain lifestyle, it's very hard to break out of it. You know, that's one thing that's intoxicating. It's the fact that you you could do anything you want at any time. Like if you wanted to, you know, at, at your peak, for instance, if you wanted to like fly to Paris the next day, there will be no issue. If you want to, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, it's intoxicating to have a to be in a lifestyle where money is never an issue, and and you want to preserve that for many reasons. Some of them are really valid reasons, but yeah, it makes you a different person. Um, I remember I was kind of court ordered, not court ordered, but it was part of my um, program to do NA meetings for a month which was a very odd decision because I've never had chemical dependency issues. But I remember when they asked me, why are you here? I was like, I'm here because of a fast life because of of an addiction to a fast life to a point where I struggled to even sit still and stay at home. And I, and that's not even just because of the game or whatever. It's like, because of even in music it's like that so um we get used to different lifestyles um stability seems boring uh (laughs) a healthy lifestyle Mm -hmm. seems boring when you're used to something else also your money your perspective on money shifts greatly you know when you're at that point Losing a thousand bucks or whatever is like nothing. It's almost like like it, it becomes like Yeah, no, it's not a big deal. To somebody to a regular person off the street, like losing a thousand bucks is like a major thing. Like there were times when I lost twenty thousand dollars in the mail or something and it sucked and I was like, Oh well, mm-hmm. I'll get another next week. Yeah, like. Now, I remember the the first time like that with speaking like money in that way. I remember like one day I pulled this pair of pants out from under my bed. They must have been there for like almost two months, and I'm just like going to wash it, and in the pocket there was two mm-hmm. grand, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, and I just like it was easy to misplace two yeah. grand. I didn't even notice, you know, and that was like earlier on. One thing, you know, I and and you too, I. Neither of us were particularly no. materialistic and, uh, you know, I'm grateful. Like, you know, I was throwing money into like projects and anarchist projects and, and, you know, I, 
Yeah. I mean, that's really like, you know, I think for us, like, you know, the majority of the money kind of went towards stuff like that. Um, you know, I mean, I never moved out of yeah. my tiny three room apartment, you know, when I was making shit money at my job going to making, you know, in 60 K a month at one point or more, like I never left the place I lived and never got a fancy car. But it changes you. I'm not going to lie. Like, at least it changes your, you know, but here's my, my overall, I mean, we don't have to get into money too much, but my, my perspective is the way money affects you is if you're an asshole and you get a lot of money, you become more of an asshole. If you're a good person and you get a lot of money, you become, you have a yeah, way to do a more good things. That, you know, could be used for either way. It's unfortunate to me, obviously, like, I wish that's not how I, society worked but that's just it's yeah it's the society we live in but you mentioned uh becoming a different person briefly when you were talking about like the game and whatnot so i, I just want to circle back to your father because we talked about mm -hmm. his journey through hell um but i spent time with your father yeah if you yeah we kind of we went to like yeah. a anarchist book fair we spent a day in new york you know um my wife you know she's my girlfriend time we we're all there and it, my impression of your father, and this is why, like, I wanted to talk about him and and your relationship with him, because you know, if <laughs> if I didn't know anything I knew of your history, your father, like the, the words that come to mind were gentle, open, caring, like very light. Like it's just, it was so easy to to be with your father. Like just just hang out. Like for someone I never met, sometimes it it can be strained or feel forced. Or like you're you're trying to like develop a connection we just yeah he speaks fondly he's fond of you both and yeah he asks about you occasionally. yeah so i'm glad that he's uh found a place though yeah outside of hell yeah right it's been a long back and forth between he definitely has those both extreme sides you know? and i can say that i've i've got them too you know like i've got mm -hmm. extreme sides of myself Maybe not as extreme as him, you know. Not not a, not everyone is 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 one way. You know? or most people don't have just one personality. Even <laughs> strange to say, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's in your music. There's these extremes that I've I've noticed. You have it's almost like this bittersweet feeling sometimes of these songs about like being crushed right like you're getting crushed like this thing is is uh it's like defeating you but then it's like well i'm never giving up and if i choose to never give up there's like this hope on the other side of that against these overwhelming odds it's such a interesting dichotomy and it, it makes sense when you describe yeah. like, you know the life that you lived you know that these things were coming at you but you had to not give up in order to continue through them. But it's just a very, it's a very bittersweet feeling with this hopeful like cherry on top. And it's weird to see that dichotomy. I think you, you pull that off and because it can be very depressing, but then you add this element yeah, to I it. Have, like, this, the last song on my final Chesky album, like make, I'm, I'm wrapping up the final Chesky album right now. Like it's, it's like, a double LP. It's called Bring Us the Head of Francisco Faults. I didn't mean for it to come out in 2024, but 2024 is the 20th year of me releasing music. 
So it just makes a lot of sense that this will be the final one. It's a difficult record, but the last song on the whole album is just like exactly what you're talking about. It's called Bright Day. And it's like, there's a bright day ahead of us. And it's the sad, one of the saddest songs in a way, but it's also has this, this hope about it. And um, it was actually the last song produced by Sixo before he passed. It was like weeks before he passed, we finished this one song. Mm-hmm. And it was just like meant to be, you know? And so uh, that's the last song of the whole album. And, and it's exactly that. And it was de- made during a really tumultuous time of life. But, um, I think that's why I have to let go of this project. I think that's why I have to let go of the whole Chesky project as a discography. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is time to make a sharp shift. And Codefendants is a big part of that shift. So. During such tumultuous times or moments, what is that bright day? Honestly, right now, just knowing that, just knowing that I have the support systems I have, you know, even with our our friendship is like massive big support. But the the friends we've made through music, my family, my partner, my you know my growing family, I could say with, with her. Um, there's so much to be grateful for. And that's always in the back of my mind. And that's what always, even at the darkest, most difficult times, I always knew I, I, it could be worse. And I think, taking it back to this idea of hell, I think because I saw a more extreme version of somebody's hell up close and personal, and, I had, and I've unfortunately seen it with a, a handful of people I care about in my life. Um, it helps me know that I don't have it that bad, that it could get worse. And I think that keeps me optimistic. My, I, I don't know why I have the persistence I have. I'm continually fighting against living a regular life. <laughs> like That's led me to some really bad decisions at times, but it's also been the best decision in my life it's all in pursuit of not having a traditional job it mostly has to do with the way i've survived like there's i've always kind of found different ways to survive that's why i'm persisting because i don't want to come out of that when i got out, i remember getting out of prison trying to get like a few regular jobs and getting shut down and being like fuck this the thing i've gotten good at in this life is music the thing i've built the most and put the most time behind in in this life is music and that's what i'm going to focus on for the rest of my life it's also the best job i've ever had do you want to call it a job it's the only thing i've actually it's the only real skill i've I've, Mm -hmm. I've got well i would say you have plenty of other good skills though you know you just beyond music like you you do have a skill of maintaining uh, relationships, right? As, as hard as it may be, but like you said, you fall back on the family, the extended family, like, you know, and that's not always easy, but the fact that those people are still there for you 
is a testament to your ability to maintain those No, I have other skills, but the one of, you know, if you're thinking about something that will help you survive in this society, the one that I've worked on the most is music, you know, and um, mm-hmm. dedicated the most time to it. Survival is yeah. is rough when you, like you said, when you choose not to have a traditional job, it, it does become more difficult to survive. Yeah. But then there's also a lot of reward for that, right? Because you're figuring out your own survival and that's a lot yeah, it, more rewarding than relying on someone else for your survival. It's, uh, there are so many times, even right now I've been, you know, in a new band and we're doing the biggest shows of my life. And even the last few months I've been, I've been last couple of years. I've financially have been some of the most difficult years I've gone through, even though I'm having this new successful venture. Just financially, it's been difficult, which has led to things like, you know, maxing out credit cards and all types of shit you don't want to think about. Not, you know, paying taxes on time, whatever. Shit you don't want to think about. Because you want to be, you want to bask in the music. You want to make more. You want to share it. But what I've noticed with music is that you might have months of this struggle. And then suddenly it gives back in a way that you could never imagine before. You know, um, it's done that. You know, I've had months and months and months of struggle. And then, you know, one day I look at my bank account, it's full of money I never, <laughs> that came from the sky or something like you. are like, what the fuck? Like, you have no idea where it came from, why it's there. <laughs> you, you don't think it's like, I, for instance, uh, during a um, pandemic, the pandemic hits, 40 shows of mine get canceled. And this is at a time post Sad Fat Luck where there was quite a bit of buzz and things were growing and the shows, you know, I, lo- I missed out on easily $40,000 in one day that was going to help me um, move back to Connecticut from LA. One day, all of that was canceled because of pandemic. Then the next thing I know, I get like a commercial on Spanish TV, you know, out of nowhere that I, you know, I had turned it into um, some licensing company turn an album in and they, they land this commercial. Like that's the kind of thing with music where you just never know. It's not consistent, but it could be so rewarding. And and then a lot of times when it feels like you've been defeated by the lifestyle, it goes and like reels you back in. And even the whole idea of co-defendants, like how co-defendants started, it, it forced me back in. I wasn't really looking for co-defendants. It just happened. And I, and I guess those things happening a handful of times in my life have maintained my optimism as well. Yeah, it's similar for me. I mean, this this podcast, um, the new uh, venture I'm yeah. taking with music, you know, these aren't things, I mean, I thought I was done, you know, I went to prison and it, like you said, it pulled me back in the support. I mean, look, the money, financial yeah. support showed up for me. Like I was, you know, in debt with legal fees 
I, I didn't have anyone on the outside who can give me financial support to, you know, buy commissary in prison. And the the music world, you know, specifically the the folk punk community, um, showed up for me, and I never expected, it, you know, and it, and yeah, it pulled me back in, and it gave me a, a hope and an optimism. Um, before we close out, Chesky, you are a funny motherfucker sometimes. Man. Sometimes I remember we went on tour <laughs> sometimes, but I remember going on tour with you and Pat, and you were like you were doing these like uh, imitations, like of Pat and of me, and like you know other like you're imitating like the dudes in Metallica. Um, wow. You know, it was just so funny. Yeah, that's a good thing on tour sometimes when I'm driving a lot and just kind of <laughs> yeah, it's true. I come up with a lot of voices and characters and stuff. Yeah, you're you're you are definitely great at that. What what is the role of humor for you? Like, how do you relate to it? Oh, humor! Wow, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Well, you know, let me just say, I've seen you uh, excited. I've seen you in mourning. I've seen you happy. I've seen you depressed. Yeah, I've seen a lot of sides of me. every side of me, but possibly. <laughs> I've seen a lot of sides of you, and that humor still comes through and it, and it seems to lift you up and the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Just what is the role of humor for you? It's super important for me. I, I, it's gotten me like, I could, I could talk all day about how music has been therapeutic. Um, I don't have a lot of humor in my music. It, when, when there's humor included in my music, it's pretty subtle. It's definitely there. It's probably, it's usually pretty dark, but it's definitely there. Um, humor has gotten me through the darkest moments of my life. So it's an important way to survive. It's like a tool we could use to get through uncomfortable moments or painful moments, boring moments like driving 14 hours to Oklahoma or whatever, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. sometimes I just, lose myself in it and i think being with like-minded people like i love i love making pat laugh like <laughs> that's one of my favorite people to make laugh i don't know it's yeah. just like there are a handful of people like that in my life you know that's one of those people where i hopefully i make him laugh in some way i just think he's he is ready to um, to laugh around me at least but we've also had obviously a lot of serious conversations but but yeah there's just something really great about pat's laugh making him crack up and that tour was fun it was it was a great time um a lot of times i think that's one of the benefits of going on tour though is just having those moments with your homies you know a lot of people don't get to live in social spaces like that most people don't. It's a very unique thing. There's a lot of inside jokes that, like, I've tried to explain. I was trying to explain to my partner, like, some of the characters and inside jokes that we had that we build on the road. Like, we have entire backstories written for these fictional characters that we create that I do voices for. I build an entire story behind them. I can call it being bored, but mostly was just sometimes it's really painful to <laughs> to travel so much. Sometimes you've just become delirious. And I think there are moments when I felt like I had to lighten the mood 
between a group mm-hmm. of people because it's not difficult. I mean, it's not an easy thing to be with a bunch of people surrounded by a bunch of people at all times. So it's a, just like being at a funeral sometimes. I don't know. I have like vivid memories of being at certain funerals where I'm like carrying a casket and one of my homies says something fucking hilarious and wrong. And it's like mm-hmm. light in the yeah. entire mood. And you know that the homie in the casket would be the first to laugh at that. You know what I mean? And that was mm-hmm. the only reason it was, mm-hmm. it was okay. But yeah. No, those are beautiful yeah. moments. Definitely. I appreciate you being one of the homies. You know, you definitely helped me out. I mean, that tour with me, you, and Pat was pretty fucking crazy. I'm probably going to do an episode about that. Like, shit went down on that tour. Yeah. Um, there was definitely a rough moment. Yeah. Yeah. With, Lee. with that was, you know, the state yeah. police were involved. Lee, my my partner got arrested. They were looking for me. You know, I was like, fuck it. I'm gonna go on the rest of this tour, essentially go on the run with you guys and to avoid getting arrested. But uh, eventually it caught up with me. Um that was the first time I got in trouble. But yeah, that having uh you and, and Pat there and uh, I appreciate that. And then later on, you know, even when I got my big case against me with the feds, like that humor of yours, I mean, you had me, I mean, there was times when you, you brought me to tears. I remember, uh, wrote a song for uh, me and, uh, our homie, uh, rock. And the first time I heard you perform it, I, I remember standing in the crowd and crying, but there's other times during that you just made me laugh. I mean, you, you've been through your own situation like that. So you had some perspective that I didn't at that point. And, you were able to bring humor in and, and I needed it. Those moments just to kind of, kind of yeah. pull through. So thank you. Thank you for being the homie. Thank you for being the homie. One of my best homies and one of the best people I've ever met in my life. But also in prison, I met some of the funniest motherfuckers ever who had lived some of the hardest lives ever. But that was a way to get through that. Like books, exercise and humor. Like, if you meet those people, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just got lucky at, at, at one point and just had the funniest cube ever of, of fools that were just constantly making me crack up. So. We'll end here, but do you mind sticking around for 15, 20 minutes and doing a little talking on the back end for our uh, Patreon subscribers? Maybe we can kind of talk about, I'd love to talk a little bit about the co-defendants and maybe we can, you know, share a story or two from, from prison on the back end. Yeah, sure. Is that cool? All right. Well, Chesky, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you, Pepe. Yeah, of course, man. You, you know, I just—I mean, you know this, but you've been an inspiration for me. Um, and you're an inspiration for me, man. Is it? And I, you know, I think like one thing we have to make really clear is that you are the reason Pat and I made the split. You know, a lot of people have since told me that's their favorite album of all time, and like you are the reason the only reason that record ever happened and people need to recognize that that you're an inspiration to us um so thank you i'm happy it happened you are two of the most important people to me and i'm I'm glad i was able to bring the both of you together and 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 see the friendship between the both of you grow thank you for that as well yeah well it warms my heart you know to see it i mean you guys love each other and it's uh it's nice to have a place in that for me. Big place. All right, Chesky. Well, listen, we'll 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 stick around and we'll we'll talk on the back end. Yeah. Thank you. Brother. Thank you, brother.
I'm going to be honest and say it was a little difficult for me to share some of the things I did in this episode. Chesky and I both got into some personal information about ourselves that we never shared publicly before. But I think one of the things that good friends do is they help you explore the parts of yourself that might be difficult to talk about. The stuff that we kind of leave in the dark. But a good friend helps you pull it out of the dark and understand who you are, who you were, and who you're becoming. And they help guide you to become a better person. I'm thankful Chesky's been able to do that with me throughout our friendship. And I'm thankful for this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming one of our Patreons. You get to hear exclusive content with our guests. We can send you some free patches and we're going to make more merch in, in the time coming. We're also going to have full episodes about special topics for our Patreon subscribers. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com slash back on the grind. There's a link in the episode show notes as well. Until then, stay free. <laughs>